Welcome to Beyond Banking, brought to you by CBD Talks, a podcast from the Commercial Bank of Dubai, delving into trends that drive the UAE, Middle East, and global economies. From digitization to decarbonization, through the evolution of AI and the advent of smart economies, we are interviewing leaders shaping our future. Join us as we foster conversations beyond banking with an eye towards the future. Welcome to Beyond Banking, brought to you by CBD Talks. I'm your host, Brett King, and we're very grateful and delighted to have with us today Frank Bizignano, who is the chairman of the board, president, and CEO of Fiserv. And uh, he came over, I presume you came over during the acquisition, Frank, in 2019 of First Data. Is that, is that accurate? That's correct. And since the acquisition of Fiserv, that makes you guys a, a, a pretty big player on the New York Stock Exchange. And you've recently updated your NYSE s- symbol to be FI. So what does FI stand for? Financial innovation. There you go. So um, it's great to have you on the show. Where are you uh, coming to us from? I'm coming from New York. Uh, Fantastic. Sitting down at our uh, executive office at One Broadway. Absolutely. So, uh, I mean, um, obviously the merger of First Data and, and Fiserv was was pretty big news. When we look at the, you know, some of the the tech that First Data had developed, um, you know, I, I know for, for myself, I was an early you know, user of some of the First Data, um, you know, mobile wallet and secure element, um, you know, product in, back in the early days, back in 2010, 2011 timeframe, when all of this was still still very new. But um, maybe just give us a bit of a picture of what the, you know, how the posture of organizations like Fiserv and First Data have changed over the last uh, 10 or 20 years because of the injection of, of fintech and, you know, these other, you know, broader sort of tech stack technologies that have come into the space. Thank you for that, Brett. And, uh, Thanks. Thanks for having me here. Um, my pleasure. Uh, you know, I wrote a shareholder letter, uh, as the CEOs will do annually. And I talked about FinTech and I talked about how we were an original FinTech. And then for a while, uh, I was a deep, deep belief that FinTech, the meaning of it changed. And it meant more about disrupting financial service providers that did uh, the fintech that I well understood, which was to help power financial service providers. And I think uh, when we put these two companies together, First Data and Fiserve, uh, it was about a vision, about uh, a purpose-driven company helping our clients grow their business. How can we bring payments how can we bring more technology? How can we make it easier for our clients' clients to do business? Um, and you've seen us over the years roll out it. I think if you go back to First Data, we had invested in a property before it was born, actually called FinZac, because I thought the intersection of core banking, the networks, plus delivering services to consumers through merchants, all would come together around the most common element, which is the client, and then the payment. And so I think we put together a company that can accomplish that globally. 
in a manner unparalleled. And, you know, obviously it's changed a lot. You know, we built Clover to be a software platform. It used to just be about accepting payments. Uh, we've moved from being a core provider to a digital provider uh, in terms of banking services. We've integrated them. So our offerings would seem seamless to the end user. Uh, I frequently say, look, at, there's not a lot of uh, financial institution clients that talk about cores. Consumers don't come in and say, your core just produced something. They're more concerned about uh, what their digital experience is. Right. And that's what we've been working on really, really hard. And I think you could see it uh, in our international growth. I could think you could see it in our U.S. growth, our investment uh, in new properties, any amount of money we spend on technology and innovation for the benefit of our clients. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that point you make, I do want to get into the Clover acquisition a bit later as well, but that, that point you make about the, the term fintech having changed, I think that's important for people to understand, right, is that today when you do a search on Google and say how many fintechs are there in the United States or in, you know, UAE as an example, you'll get a number back of the startups that are involved in financial technology. What you won't get is traditional financial technology infrastructure players like yourselves. So I think the industry's terminology well, around fintech is, is that Google search, by the way. I'm sure. I'm sure. Well, you know, you know, I, I will give you a little tip. You can try out later, Frank. Uh, if you put in Google, who is the king of fintech? You'll see what the results are there. That, okay. That's all about search engine optimization. I'll just say that. But um, I do think what's important about that is what you're describing here with the acquisition of Clover, with the first data, you know, acquisition and so forth you know, the payments rails, there's certainly been a ton of, um, you know, innovation happening in those areas because of sort of emergent technologies like mobile wallets and and so forth, which make it uh, a very interesting space. And that has extended um, the sort of tech, tech stack that we see appearing in sort of the fintech space more generally. Now, one of the points I, I like to make about the fintechs versus sort of traditional incumbents in the space is you don't, even though players like Revolut and Nubank have a core system, they don't often refer to their core, right, as, as part of their sort of strategic business decisioning. They're referring to their tech stack, you know, as their sort of broad agility capability. So how does that sort of change the way you guys think about you know, the, the infrastructure, and is that part of the driver behind these acquisitions? Well, you know, I think ultimately we're in a business of choice. Uh, and our job at Fiserv is to create the environment that allows um, our clients, call it businesses, call it financial institutions, every opportunity to deliver what their clients want. And, you know, that means uh, a great set of rails uh, and then the ability on the front end to interface in a manner most comfortable, whether it's your phone, whether it's a different device, uh, and have it in a manner that for the end consumer, it's easy to utilize. Uh, so rails matter a lot. 
Optionality matters a lot. We have to provide every one of our clients the ability to move money or information in any manner they like. Uh, and then to be able to do it in a fashion that uh, allows their clients, their end users to access it. So I think, you know, we have a uh, advantage position. Uh, I know everybody likes to talk about newer tech stacks. Um, and all we ever do is build out more functionality in 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 our newest environments and in our oldest. But ultimately, you know, when you go to any financial institution or any large to small business, what they find us bringing to them is choice. And if we could give them choice and they could give their consumers choice, their odds of getting more of their individual clients' balls are larger. And that's really ultimately what we're doing, help them address their addressable market. Yeah, I get it. Um, now, you know, you made the strategic decision to change your ticker symbol to FI for financial innovation. So tell me about how you are executing on innovation as a culture in the organization. And, to, and I know you've opened up recently a innovation lab in New Jersey. So maybe you can explain where that fits in as well. Yeah. So uh, let's go way up top. Um, you know, the way I describe the company is if you thought about companies defined by who and what they employ, uh, if uh, I'm a pizzeria, I probably have some people serving and I have some people making pizza. Uh, if I believe uh, I'm a technology company, uh, I probably should define myself is the largest client alliance employee-based software engineers. So the number one job in this company of all the jobs, you know, and it's tens of thousands, um, is a software engineer. And, you know, we moved from being a processor to a developer of systems to continually help our clients grow their business. And we concluded that uh, we thought having our product people and our engineering people co-locate in a manner that can serve our clients better and move it more agile was good for us. And so that's really thus the FinTech hub in in uh, Berkeley Heights, New Jersey. Uh, I would say, you know, it's happening all over the company. It's happening in Alpharetta. It's happening in Alpharetta's in Georgia, uh, Omaha in Nebraska, happening in India, happening in Poland. And it's really about, you know, software development. Uh, I think, you know, we serve financial institutions. We also serve fundamentally businesses all over the world and financial institutions all over the world. And we felt, you know, to better define ourselves, um, we should, we should be what we are. We're financial innovators, uh, through technology. Well, I, I want to dive into that a bit more, but in, in respect to your personal journey, to some extent, because, you know, I mean, um, you obviously took first data from being, you know, as you said, a traditional processor to being a, a you know, industry collaborator, innovator, you know, a platform 
for um, you know innovation in, in some respects. It was the largest uh, US IPO back in 2015 when you did when uh, First Data IPO'd before the acquisition. But prior to that, I mean, the reality is you've got 30 years of experience working in the trenches at banks and global financial institutions. So when was it in your career that, that you realized the switch was, uh, I have to move from being a banking infrastructure player to a technology player, right? I mean, the distinction might sound a little bit different, but when you realized that tech was the future of your career personally. I had uh, overseen technology in two of the largest financial institutions, you know, in the world, be it City and J.P. Morgan, from probably the 90s to 13. So uh, I ran large parts of those institutions and large businesses in those institutions, but always thought the great enabler and and maybe where my deepest passion was is uh, develop, developing product, delivering product, everything from, you know, back in the day, taking a picture of a check on a iPhone before anybody ever thought of it to, you know, ultimately delivering, you know, great mobile and online ubiquitous client experiences. And on that journey, you know, I thought I was, I was, you know, I was just blessed to work in the institutions I worked in and even more blessed to work with the partners and colleagues I did. But it became clear that technology was a great enabler. Uh, that you can be a great enabler of financial services not sitting inside a bank or a securities firm, but you could do it outside. And in some ways, I felt blessed and honored to have the opportunity to serve you know globally, you know tens of thousands of banks uh, in something I got the opportunity to do inside two of the best financial institutions in the world, I believe, at the time, uh, and still two of the greatest brands. So I think, you know, I don't know that a light went off on a day as much as a natural journey. Right. Uh, It's interesting. I think what I realized when I got to First Data was they never had uh, a person run it who sat inside financial institutions. Uh, And I actually think we brought a different set of thoughts to how to serve our client base, both uh, businesses and financial institutions, from having sat inside them and have large positions to help run them. I kind of feel like it's all an extension of what I was doing, but just from a different seat. Uh, I get to do it with a lot more financial institutions than I would inside one. So I think it was, you know, a natural evolution that I even think, you know, when I was in business with KKR, who was a great partner, and obviously, you know, First Data was a large property and the third largest leverage buyout, it it became somewhat obvious that having a technology background and a financial services background was in our belief a strategic advantage to being able to do what we got done at First Data and now at Pfizer. Yeah, I get that. Um, at uh, you know, Commercial Banker Dubai, I don't know if you've met him, but the, the CEO, um, Dr. Bernd Van Linder, 
um, you know, studied artificial intelligence. And um, obviously, you know, we, we look at Jamie Dimon, for example, in the States or Piyush Gupta at DBS, and both of those CEOs have had to become extremely competent in respect to sort of the technology plays and so forth. You know, I've always sort of thought about it as we'll know when we're at that point where technology is now sort of the primary pursuit of, of banks when, you know, they're, they're announcing the new CEO who started in the data center at the bank instead of starting at a branch or in the marketing department or the mortgage department now is becoming the CEO. And we're starting to see a lot more technology sort of competency creep in in the industry. Do you think, um, you know, in the United States in particular, do you think that that is sort of generally accepted across the sector or do you think it's still outliers like uh, Jamie Dimon and others that uh, you know, see this trend? Well, I would, I would say, first of all, uh, you know, and I, I guess I get to say this because I worked with him quite some time. Jamie, yeah, you, you, you were, you were, didn't you head up mortgages or something? I, I, don't I, was, I was the co-chief operating officer. Before that, I was the chief administrative officer. I saw the more over, right. over- Mortgage business, both the mortgage crisis, and uh, yeah, yeah. I can so say you definitely it. worked with him. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for for all that time, uh, going back to city, he was always he always had a large bent on technology. He always cared about technology. I would say, uh, uh, in my banking career, I've worked under CEOs who really cared about technology, and maybe that's why I was there. Um, and, and continue to evolve with it. So do I think the, uh, I think in a lot of these CEO jobs, uh, and I even take it beyond banking, technology will become a core competency, uh, where maybe that wasn't the case, um, you know, a while ago. Right. You so, could leave that to the, the IT guys, right, in the past. Yeah, but now like it's, it was, it's hey, that happens over there. I don't have to think about it. I right, got a right. CIO. He does what we need, and and it's magic. Well, it's no longer magic, and AI is not magic, and I kind of feel like, oh, I'm sure we're going to talk about AI a bit, but, you know, it's not as new as we make it sound. We may have called right. it AI it's just the broad. version of AI that we're looking at today, right? The LLMs. Exactly. Exactly. And I feel like we've been using it for a long time. And, you know, I think we take everything to the next level. But I would, I would say, you know, most CEOs need to have their brain have a large part allocated to technology innovation because that's how you're going to get market share gains, too. Yeah, no, I, I can see that. Um, you know, what uh, sort of diving into that a little bit, I mean, you talked about, um, you know, the technology to uh, photograph a check on your iPhone and that being fairly revolutionary in the early, early days. But, of course, uh, we're coming to you, you know, right now from, you know, the, the United Arab Emirates. And there, in terms of uh, cash utilization, as is what's happening in large part around the world, um, you know, cash usage is declining very rapidly. So the Emirates uh, ranked uh, as the eighth most cashless society in the world in 2021. About two-thirds of people in the UAE um, expect the country to be fully cashless by 2030. Um, I'm just I'm working on a new book at the moment around uh, branch decline, and Australia and New Zealand are in the top 
uh, five countries in terms of uh, cash cash decline and, and use of things like contactless technology. And then we've got, of course, what's happening in China and around the world with mobile wallets. And it's, it's you know, fairly rapidly changing. But the United States has got some really sticky payments behavior around things like uh, cash and, and checks. You know, how much of that is sort of just inertia in the existing system versus the fact that the rails tend to favor those, uh, those vehicles or met- methodologies? Yeah, I mean, I mean, like, uh, I, I kind of first of all, let's take the global view. Obviously, in my point of view, cashless is the world, right? If you just think about what Fiserv yeah. does, you know, it, it's about how to enable cashless everywhere, every way, through every form of rails. And I, I always said, Marvel, that outside the U.S had moved faster than the U.S. Uh, And I think there's multiple factors in that, but I think that's declining very fast, right? I think, you know, adoption rates are continuing to move. You know, generational divides are working all to the favor of cashless. Um, innovation is all targeted at cash. You don't have any innovation dollars going to cash. Just think of it that simply. So if you never put innovation dollars to a topic, and if you think about all the people who provided services around cash and what's happened to a large part of their extinction, the obvious next step is, you know, that the U.S. behaves more in a a mechanism like the rest of the world. And at an absolute number, it's a huge number who already behave like that. The problem is you have an absolute number behind it that still has cash. You know, um, obviously, if you run uh, Fiserv, you frequently think cash is your competitor. Uh, uh, right. Yeah, that's a good way know, to think so about it. Yeah. If I see somebody and they take cash out of their pocket, I say, hey, that's my competitor you're using right now. So I have an interesting point of view. Uh, I love what's going on, you know, in, in, in UAE and the adoption and that's bigger than UAE. Uh, you know, in 1990 to 94, I sat uh, in a very senior position, uh, what would have been considered then a regional bank. And we were talking about this occurring back then. So the journey has been long, but I really think we're in the late innings, if you could use a U.S. baseball example, the late innings of this in the U.S. and in other places, you know, uh, the U.S. Open's going on now, so I'll use the tennis phrase. I think it's game, set, match already in most of the world. Yeah, no, I agree. Cash decline. I think the figures were, I haven't seen the latest figures, but it's like two thirds of all checks written in the world are still written in the United States. But obviously that broad behavior, as you say, is, is changing fairly rapidly. It's a bit of a generational shift. I'm reminded of that Churchill quote, right? About um, you can always rely on the United States to do the right thing uh, when they've exhausted all other options. And that's a bit of sort of the story and payments in the U S is like, um, 
you know, there's a lot of stickiness in respect to that, but that's just, you know, a lot of it is just because of inertia in the system. One of the reasons that China was able to shift to cashless or, you know, so quickly or mobile wallets in particular is they didn't have checks and they had very little card penetration. So, you know, I think that has to be taken into account. You've got a very well-worn path in terms of payments in the US. But I, I love the way you position cash as a competitor. It's a, it's a really yeah, interesting... Yeah, and, and, you know, to take another old phrase, right, old habits die hard, you know, they yeah, take a yeah. long time. And, you know, if you got everything set up on your bill pay mechanism and, you know... The other, the other person's not accepting it in a manner, but it, 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 it's in, there's no question about the decline at all. So, so um, in that respect, just before we, we go to break quickly, um, but just, just before we go to break, how has that played out in terms of the culture of the organization? Um, are you having to sort of quietly move the old guard away or is there none of that resistance and, and sort of the culture is around this sort of more innovative approach to payments and so forth? You know, I talk about this issue that the largest job family in the company is technology, and then the largest embedded job type is software engineer. Right. So your culture needs to adapt to the world that you oversee. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. A bunch of other large job types so you you culturally adapt or maybe culturally adapt more to that so i think the 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 largest parts of the student body here if you think about it that way are technologists the deepest bent in the company is technology and innovation and so yeah so it just makes sense you organize around that yeah yeah you have people who are having trouble adapting but i put that in the few and far between versus those that see the great world good well that's good um i do want to talk about um you know sort of broader digitization uh, efforts and so forth and trends um, you know, with you in a moment, but let's just take a quick break. You're listening to Beyond Banking. We're with Frank Visignano, who is the uh, ch- chairman and CEO at Fiserv. We'll be right back after this break. You're listening to Beyond Banking, proudly brought to you by the Commercial Bank of Dubai. Don't miss out on our latest episodes available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. Welcome back to Beyond Banking, brought to you by CBD Talks. Uh, Frank, before the break, uh, you know, we were talking about sort of trends in innovation and, you know, I I love the way you sort of talk about the emergent culture and so forth there. Um, But part of what's going on in terms of this is not just the end consumer experience in, in terms of the use of wallets and so forth. We are seeing experimentation in different types of digital currencies. We're seeing experimentation with things like uh, smart contracts and uh, digitization of assets, you know, the digital twin concept and things like this. There's a lot of innovation um, happening just sort of generally in the way we think about money and the way it moves around, um, which is sort of, it's pretty interesting. In the States right now, there's um, some pretty interesting challenges in terms of the way the SEC views stable coins and cryptocurrencies versus the way the rest of the world has has viewed this and you know essentially sort of the SEC's broad picture seems to be that everything's a security but um 
you know, we are also obviously seeing um, China, uh, you know, with, has had some fair success with the central bank digital currency. The UAE and Saudi are working on uh, potentially a joint uh, wholesale uh, CBDC strategy, um, although they've both got uh, their own um, CBDC uh, strategies there. Um, in, in terms of FISERV's sort of internal policy or, or view of digital currencies, um, do you guys have a preference? Are you agnostic? You know, do you feel like, you, you know, you have to be a part of shaping policy on this? Well, I don't, I don't know that uh, we feel we have to be a part of shaping policy, but we'd always like to be invited to a table to have the opportunity uh, start there as a thought process for us. I, I, I would, I would come back a second. You know, if you go back to the mission of the company, you know, um, our job is uh, to help our clients uh, enable commerce fundamentally in any form they want. Um, you know, I, I always say if uh, X or Y wants to accept this form of payment, we have to create the opportunities for them to do that. So um, I put us more in the agnostic category, but you know we are a commerce enabler, right? So that works uh, in a regulated industry, right? Yeah, and so and 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 I'd say we're a commerce. Remember, a commerce enabler both at a point of sale and within financial institutions. So kind of. You got both sides inside this company now. And tomorrow, if company X came and said, look, it, it is important that we accept this form of currency, I believe our job is to have the rails and the capability and all the reporting and settlement and everything that goes along with it. Um, so you'd see us you know, collaborating with our client base around the world on what their needs are. Now, this space has been receiving a lot of uh, innovation capital, both human capital, mental capital, and economic capital against it over the past decade. And, you know, when you see that trend happening, in industry, you know, there will be things that survive and become mainstream. And then there'll be things that, you know, fold into the other. Our job isn't to pick which one. Our job is to be prepared for all. Now, that may sound like a, wow, that's going to be very hard. But I think we've done that forever. Right. You know, there there's been lots, you know, you go back to conversion of cash to card. Uh, you go back to like, you know, how, in fact, settlements occurred. Uh, you look at all the different everybody's recognizing that uh, real time payments and the ability you know, to record at the minute the transaction occurs is now the world we live in. So, you're, you know, you got a, a lot going on around CBDC. 
you have the natural digitization of all financial instruments. And there's going to be some long-term survivors in this space. Uh, countries may adopt different ways to think about this. Uh, obviously, you know, you're referring to, you know, where let's call it the U.S. is on this issue right now. Right. Um, but I think this is very fluid. Uh, we have a bunch but you, of- you're a global company after all, so you yeah. have to service all these global trends, not just U.S., about, right? That's how I think about it, you know, and, yeah. and I think about it in a manner that, you know, this is really uh, a place we have to face off with economies to understand back to this global point, different countries are going to do different things and we have to be prepared to act in the companies, mm-hmm. in the countries that we act in. Uh, I think it's going to be, I think it's going to uh, require a bunch of money. I think some yeah. things work, some things aren't. Um, and, you know, the objective is to make the world a better place, right? Uh, not to create confusion. Um, so I'm highly motivated for it. Uh, we're in a lot of huddles, my language on it. We have experiments around it. Uh, and, you know, I, I consider that when, if I'm fortunate enough to be on this show five years from now, that we'll still be talking about it, but at a different level, more specific. Mm. You know? Yeah, I, I mean, I, I do think, you know, if you look at, maybe five years, but certainly 10 years, the way we might think our bank account to work, we do have some uh, leaning indicators of that. You know, with these wallets, we're seeing a lot more of wallets based on independent value stores and we're seeing a lot more payment systems based on push versus pull. So the current sort of um, card rails, card schemes are, you know, mainly pull, you know, with an authentication model. But if you look at the big QR code systems, you look at, you know, the Chinese mob wallets and so forth, they're essentially a a push system where the user is confirming the payment to that merchant and pushing the funds to that merchant based on ask, right? Um, So if we we extrapolate that to sort of an AI-based payment system or a wallet that's smart, you know, we're, we're really sort of talking about something that brings in identity, fraud management, um, and the ability to sort of be highly adaptive in terms of which payment rails to to use in the moment, but that could be a technology that's in someone's phone. Is that a? You think that's a reasonable view of where we could go? A hundred percent, a hundred percent. And I, I mean, one thing to step back and say: if you've followed innovation over centuries, and obviously the speed of innovation has changed, the type of innovation has changed, but kind of the process around it, and, and you know, you look at all types of innovation, it's never, oh, here's an idea and it's going to immediately work and let's do it. It iterates it has mutations. It moves around. What appears really good maybe doesn't scale at the manner. You need to fail to succeed. And that's all going on right now in this space. 
And so I kind of feel like it's very natural. Now there are some things that try to innovate for a really long time and find out that it's not a better answer, right? But I think here there are going to be multiple versions of better answers. And then ubiquity will take over at some point. Mm, yeah. Yeah. No, and I, I, think I think ubiquity at the moment ends up in your phone most of the time. To your point. And it tends to be, um, there tends to be a lot of localization, even though there's patterns borrowed from other markets, you know, you, you, uh, you, you know, I think we have the fastest growth in new payments networks that we've seen since certainly since the seventies right now going on, you know, you've got PixPay in Brazil, you got all these different, uh, things sort of launching and, and being massively successful. So it's certainly a very dynamic environment. Well, I think, you know, I think there's one reason for it. You know, I, I, I concluded all these things are generally one reason. People figure out that there's the opportunity to disrupt and to make money. Right. <laughs> and so for yeah, that, yeah. it attracts capital, both human capital and economic capital. You know, and, and I think inside Visor, we think our job is to disrupt ourselves a lot. Like, like, you know, yes, we do what we do very well, but we better be prepared to do something completely different because if we're not doing that, we'll find ourselves, you know, uh, behind, not ahead. Absolutely. Um, you know, I, I, I sort of look at your Clover acquisition and, you know, Clover's obviously been doing, um, you know, some some really interesting point-of-sale innovations and so forth. So as as there is modernization of, of point-of-sale systems, you know, new, new tech is coming into there. But we just recently saw Apple announce their uh, Vision Pro, which is going to be launched uh, next year. And so it appears like the next big personal computing platform, you know, at some stage over the next 10 years is going to be, you know, some form of smart glasses or something like that. Um, so as these form factors are changing, you know, how do you, how do you think point of sale might evolve in, in that uh, environment? Well, you know, Clover is a software play, not a hardware play. Uh, and so I think that ultimately it's always software, right? And, and, and I think wherever somebody wants to run that software is where we're going to end up. Right. It, it's not going to be about a physical form factor. It's going to be about a technical capability. And and payments are really a mainstay. But ultimately, you know, the institution accepting payments wants way more capability than payments, including the ability to attract more clients. Uh, and I think that our job is delivering that software with payment capability, not having payment capability and being a software as a side. Mm. If you think about it that way, then you say you're going to build your software in a manner that it could be used in any manner the acceptor of payments would want it or used without payments. Have you, have you seen the, um, debate going on about WorldCoin at the moment with OpenAI and, um, with uh, Mark Mark Andreessen, uh, you know, a a sixteen. Just yeah. in terms of uh, yeah. the reason I'm asking, I don't think is it's an isolated debate. 
No, no, it isn't. But this is the point, right? Is that, um, you know, capturing identity from a biometric perspective is sort of having biometric identity is sort of a baseline for the, the smart economies of the 21st century, right? You know, we have to have digital identity to secure the system. So from a cybersecurity perspective, your mother's maiden name, your social security number, your date of birth, these are no longer securable. And you, you obviously spend millions of dollars trying to keep, uh, you know, identity uh, and cybersecurity, you know, as a... As a yeah, that uh, would know, be a platform. gross understatement, but... Yes, yeah. yes. Um, <laughs> but, but, you know, in... You know, we're seeing these private companies now come along and try to capture identity and regulators stepping in. Well, you know, that's really sort of the role of governments. We're a bit concerned about this. But increasingly, as we look to more and more automated payments rails and so forth, you've got to tie identity into that. And the current identity infrastructure is just just not up to scuff. So, um, you know, from... from um, do you, you see yourselves as an identity company as well as a payments processing company? Well, I think we always have been, but in that olden form, so to speak. And that form yeah. is changing right in front of us. So right. it wasn't like, you know, we've always had identity elements to cause us to be able to transact for the benefit of our clients. The world's just changing the bar. Yeah. For the technology, if you argue social security number and mother's maiden name and maybe my second dog's uh, breed, or that was the sure. technology of identity twenty years ago. Right, right, right. Right. You know, I like to I like to say this. You know, when I started, it was called data security. And then when I got older, it was information security. Right. And now it's cyber security, but it's all the same thing. Yeah, It's just the technology is advanced and we've come along. So I think that's all we're really talking about here. Yeah, no, I I like that. That's a fairly pragmatic view, but it works. Yeah, yeah, well, I'm known for that. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Good at the obvious. Yeah, good. Good. Um, now, you know, we talked earlier about artificial intelligence. Of course, that's been, you know, part of your tech for, for many years, as you, you said. But right now today, you've got all of these startups emerging, lots of, you know, it was fintech back in, um, you know, 2020, 2021 that was getting big funding. You know, one in five venture capital deals were fintech deals back in those days. But a lot of that attention shifted to artificial intelligence. So where, where is uh, Fiserv investing in AI today? We don't. Uh, what I like to say is we've been investing in AI for a long time, and we invested in it early on, you know, to greatly enhance client experience. Then we invested as we went on to ben- always at the benefit of our client. Then in the management of fraud and the like, and. I think those were really the right areas to learn, but AI's advanced a lot now that it's AI, because you know, I would argue 10 years ago we probably weren't really talking in that manner, but we were using it. We were talking about data science. Exactly. But that was the, you know, 
go back to, you know, data security and it's the same journey, right? right? right. The journey of how do we become more intelligent with all the information we have to get better outcomes. And honestly, you know, in some manner, we have a large part of the company deployed in that manner. Everything from how do we help our clients acquire more clients to how do we make decisioning better, right? Not just faster, but better, right? How do we offer products in a different manner to clients with a higher propensity for different? Those were all forms of AI that are now getting much smarter, right? So, you know, it's kind of like, not to go off on a tangent, but I'm good at that. It's kind of like cloud. People want to talk about cloud. And, you know, um, because... Well, you know, I mean, actually, I, I will ask you, um, you know, NVIDIA has has come out with some really interesting accelerated computing advances recently with their sort of GPU as a CPU type concept. And we're seeing data centers sort of shift towards this. Uh, Tesla just announced a massive AI-based uh, data center. So are you having to invest in data center tech like that also? Well, you know, I, I think I was headed there, right? When I was saying just about cloud too, you know, like people are talking about cloud and I'm like, well, you know, 11 years ago or whatever the heck it was, we built Clover in the cloud, right? right. So, 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 you know, we always got to be careful about what are we actually doing and what are people like talking about a lot, Right. So I do think the whole nature of data centers and infrastructure changes through all of this. By the way, when I started in technology, the room at the mainframe was in, could have been almost, you know, bigger than a house. And today, so, so all we have is lots of natural evolutions occurring in my opinion. Yeah, I get it. You need to invest in these evolutions. You can't I got a great I got a great statistic for you on that, right? You, Which you is your caught in the last generation and missed the next generation. And that's why I say we like disrupting ourselves, whether it's in our infrastructure or whether it's in our product delivery. What's your great stat? Go ahead, Brett. No, so um if you you know your your smartphone today has more computing power than the combined financial sector of the US banking industry in 1985. <laughs> so there's a good stat for you. I and love and it. you were talking you were talking about um you know the develop you know like technology innovation and disruption over the last 300 years. I got another good quote for you I used in my book Augmented in 2015. The number of industries that have successfully defended their business model against innovation in the last 250 years is zero, zero right? So, yeah. yeah. No, I mean, obvious, you got to look different than you were because the world is different. And yeah. if you're not prepared, you know, and that gets back to, you know, people, people want to think about, you know, legacy systems and tech stacks. But, you know, it's impossible not to have a legacy system once you actually have a business, 
And, and what you need to do is continue to bring that next generation so you're disrupting your old legacy system, right? You know, and you watch us do that and come buying companies like FinZac, buying things like Clover, because we recognize that we have capital to deploy against innovation. The benefit of having a large company, let's call us that for a second, that you know has billions of dollars of earnings and thus billions of dollars of free cash flow, is we get the choice to reinvest in our business and do things to modernize and disrupt ourselves. And I think that's what you'll find, you know, have you know, all all great companies who have had duration, and I'm not putting us in the ilks of JP Morgan or Apple, have really reinvented themselves technically religiously. Mm. Gotta reinvent yourself technically. Yeah, no, I agree. Um, you know, we started this discussion by talking about the definition of the word fintech. So I want to sort of bring it back full circle a little bit. I don't know if you saw the results of Nubank, the uh, Latin American uh, challenger, um, you know, a couple of months ago. Um, but, um, you know, they have they had some very good results. They're at 85 million customers now. Itaú, the largest bank, you know, traditional bank in the uh, in 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 LATAM today is 55 million. So that's uh, telling, um, you know, but their performance in things like NPL ratios and so forth is, uh, has been you know, be- better than industry in general. So this sort of thought that traditional banks would be better at managing risk, we've sort of got to take another look at that. Their customer acquisition costs are lower. But the fact is we've got players like this, some that have been successful, others not as successful, uh, in in different regions, but there's a lot more new entrants coming into this space. Whether they're neo banks, whether they're wallet schemes, you know, whether they're super apps and so forth. So, how has that changed the overall view of your client business today? And have you had to sort of um, specialize in some of those areas, or you know, how has it changed the org structure? Well, you know, the way the way uh, I think about it, and you could. Consider new bank a different type of fintech. How's that? You know what I'm saying? <laughs> in theory, you I know, get it. Yeah, yeah. They're, you know, an innovator, a creator, and they've taken market share from others. Right. And so we like to look at market structures, we like to look at total addressable markets. And then, you know, we'll always find new competitors or growth competitors that we want to face off against and be able to be part of their growth engine. Uh, You know, I think, you know, I think we have, I believe this, the best client base in the industry and the best distribution force in the industry. We got to keep growing that and doing it with new entrants. Yeah. Uh, and so, you know, it's not to me, it's a simple set of thoughts that say as innovators come along and as market share changes, we want to be the enabler of commerce and, and fintech services and payments for all of them. 
So I'll just finish up with one question, Frank. So looking at, you know, the next 5, 10, 20 years, is there anything that, you know, in, in particular in respect to trends that are emerging or the future of the business that really intrigues you or concerns you in any respect? Well, I think, I think uh, in the concern category, it, it's probably the amount of human change that's occurring in general from workforce dynamic to social dynamics to disruption mm. to, you know, extremities. Uh, that's happened. Maybe, maybe some of it pandemic induced. I haven't, you know, somebody will study this more than me at a speed that we, I think is greater than we've seen. Now, maybe I'll go yeah. back to history and figure out I'd always moved at this pace. Um, I think, I think workforce dynamics are real and, and, you know, over time we'll figure out who gets it right and who gets it wrong. Um, but you know, where, where do you sit on the whole AI is going to take all the jobs from humans, um, spectrum? Well, I think that, you know, it's going to be hard to get some things done that way, you know, but put it this way, technology has always been designed to increase quality and productivity. Right. And productivity is a broad word and quality is a broad word. But at the end of the day... But the ultimate productivity is having no human involved in production, right? Exactly. Exactly. Uh, although I, I frequently said, well, you need somebody running the system. Right. You still need oversight. You, you, yeah. you need like it. three people when you're done. Yeah. In the <laughs> so so um, Fiserv in, in 2035 is going to have that, three employees. I've been in pursuit of that forever and somehow ends up with a lot of people all the time. So yeah, absolutely. <laughs> assume I'm well, Frank, it's been, it's been great to have you on the, uh, the show today. Um, you know, I, I, I think it's it's really interesting to hear you talk about the fact that we're just on this continuous uh, cycle of innovation and, you know, the different flavors of technology uh, sort of blips in the radar to some extent, but that, that forward march of, of tech continues relentlessly. Um, how do people find out more about what's happening at Fiserv and, and with these various technologies you're working on? Well, I think we, uh, one, we spend a lot of time in the market and talking, so... Two, we're open for business and open to help and open to visit and happy to talk to people. We got we're we're you know completely committed to being available for, for, for all the constituents around the world. Fantastic. Well, thanks for joining us on Beyond Banking today. Hey, you do a great job. Thank you. All right, that's it for this episode. We will be back with more Beyond Banking brought to you by CBD Talks uh, for our next episode. Stay tuned. That's it for this episode of Beyond Banking, brought to you by CBD Talks. If you enjoyed the content, please subscribe for future episodes. Like the podcast, share the podcast with your colleagues and friends. It all helps people find our content. We'll be back with another compelling episode shortly. Until then, from everyone at the Commercial Bank of Dubai, thank you for listening.